Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Neil, and I'm the adult and family pastor at our church, and it is my great pleasure to open up the scriptures for us today. Welcome, everybody, on the live stream. It's good to be with you all. Uh, today, we are going to read an ancient war account of a battle between two Eastern Mediterranean ethnic groups around approximately 1200 B.C., this means that the war happened approximately 3,223 years ago. Why, on a Sunday morning between singing songs and having lunch, would we spend any amount of time on an ancient war account? And the answer is because this particular war account is part of an ancient collection of carefully curated poetry, history, prayers, teaching, apocalypse, and correspondence letters that are gathered into what we call the Bible. And this curated collection of ancient documents all reveal essential truths about life's big questions that people in every generation are asking throughout history. Where did we come from? What is our purpose? What is the fundamental reason for the problems in our world? And importantly, what is the solution? All the history, the prayers, the teaching, the poems, the letters in the Bible collectively answer these big questions. And if you're exploring Christianity today, I invite you to read your Bible with these big questions in mind. The ancient war story we're looking at today is found in the biblical book of Judges. It's a history book chronicling the major events between the time that God brought the people of Israel out from the land of slavery in Egypt into the promised land and when they established a unified kingdom under King Saul. So the book of Judges records a tremendous time of identity formation for the nation. The adrenaline of being freed from slavery, from charging into the promised land, has drained. And now they are leaning into the routine of everyday life. It's sort of a first time away from home situation where you're setting into the rhythm of college life. What choices are you going to make? How will your faith develop while you're in college? But if you have spent any time reading the book of Judges, you'll know that it is sometimes difficult to understand how one part contributes to the overall answer of life's big questions that we're asking in 2023. As you've read Judges, you might not identify with it whatsoever. Gideon and a threshing floor? Samson and a donkey jawbone? Jael and a tent peg? What's going on here? How do these stories have anything to do with my life? Well, there is an important interpretive key to understanding the various parts of the Bible. And we're calling this key true and better. Here's the key. The stories curated in the Bible in some way point to Jesus Christ, who is true and better. So when we come to a text in the Bible, we can ask, how does this story point to Jesus? How does it present a contrast to Jesus or highlight a characteristic of Jesus? The story of Adam and Eve, as they fail to live to their fullest potential, shines a spotlight more powerfully on Jesus' success. The story of Abraham and Isaac's willing sacrifice highlights the totality of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When Cain's murder of Abel directs humanity on a worse trajectory, Jesus' faithfulness on the cross sets humanity on a better trajectory. 
true and better. And for 2,000 years, Christians have claimed that the answer to life's big questions centers on Jesus Christ. So we're going to look closely at the details of this war account from Judges. It's on Judges chapter 4. You can find a blue Bible, uh, find a Bible near you uh, and open it to Judges chapter 4. If you did grab the blue Bible, it's on page 203. And as we pay attention to the details of this war account, ask yourself how this points to Jesus as true and better and how this revelation might reveal some of life's big questions. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Holy Spirit, we believe and trust that you inspired the people who formed the Bible to include this story for a reason. And we ask you now to help us understand that reason and live into the reality that this text speaks of like never before. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Judges, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was a previous judge. He had rescued people from bondage, and then he died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Have you ever woken up and wondered how your life and relationships have gotten to this place? What caused the heartbreak? What caused the pain? I was a youth pastor in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it was a drizzly, rainy day, so common up there, and I was walking down Hastings Street to McDonald's. Hastings Street in Vancouver is where hundreds and hundreds of people came to live when Canada shut down their mental health hospitals, their, quote, insane asylums. And the people with significant mental health illnesses suddenly were without support. They literally had to walk out of the hospitals and were on the streets. Hastings Street is where the city of Vancouver funneled people without homes so that the rest of the city would look pristine as it does. Hastings Street is where drug addicts and nonprofit workers struggle together through the tragedy and the beauty of life, right there on the sidewalk, all around on Hastings Street. And I was walking with a young man who was 16, and he poured out his story of how his mother is living in the Salvation Army rescue shelter on Hastings Street, and his father spends most of his time drinking in their apartment. And this young man and I were walking to McDonald's where he was applying to get a job And he was trying to understand the chaos in his life and the weight in his heart. A series of very complex personal and societal choices led this family into this heartbreak. The people of Israel have been in an equally complex situation for 20 years. How did God's beloved people Israel get into this situation of being oppressed? It doesn't look like what you'd expect from God's chosen people. God himself has commissioned this nation to be a blessing to all the world. And here they are, oppressed for 20 years. The text tells us in verse 1 that they are in bondage because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, throughout the book of Judges, 
not just in chapter 4. The people of Israel disregard God's clear moral guidance for living a good, a good life. The book of Judges concludes with this line, the very last line of the entire book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the result was bondage. This is the opposite of what God has commanded them when they were journeying from Egypt to the promised land. In Deuteronomy 6, just after Moses hands them the Ten Commandments for living a good life, he says in chapter 6, verse 17, Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Quote, Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord has promised on oath to your forefathers. Biblical scholar Ellen Davis writes that the echo of the phrase, do what is right in their own eyes in Judges, reveals that in Canaan, the situation is now directly contrary to where it should be. The norm for behavior is not Yahweh's will, but the will of each individual Israelite. The Israelites ignore God's guidance and join the surrounding culture, worshiping multiple gods, possibly even sacrificing their children in worship as the surrounding cultures did, ignoring the Sabbath rest, having sexual encounters with people who are not their spouse, and on it goes. They capitulate to the surrounding culture. But Israel's collective sin is not the only reason they are in bondage. Our story mentions three specific external enemies that keep Israel in bondage as well. Look at verse 1. Uh, verse 2. The Canaanites. They are the surrounding culture that applies persistent pressure on Israel to conform. They are the majority people in the region, setting policy, educating people based on their ethics. They press, the pressure to live like the Canaanites was all around the Israelite families, the Israelite kids, the Israelite business people. The story also mentions Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army of 900 iron chariots. This army completely outguns Israel, who have zero chariots. Sisera is intimidating. He is powerful. He is in control. And the story mentions Jabal, the political leader of Canaan. Now, this is the second time a Canaanite ruler named Jabal appears in the biblical story. The first Jabal is mentioned in the book of Joshua, chapter 11, when Israel is first coming into the land. And a Canaanite king named Jabal gathers the armies of other local kingdoms to fight against Israel. But the God of Israel delivers Jabal, or delivers Joshua and his people, and gives victory over Jabal, and Jabal is killed. But now a second Jabal shows up different person, but he represents the same evil and opposition to God and God's people. It's almost as if Hitler's reign of terror in World War II ended, but then another person named Hitler came to power decades later to pose a new threat to the world. The nation of Israel is in bondage because of their own evil choices and because of the ethos, the intimidation, the political influence of the majority culture, and they need a deliverer. Are you picking up any answers to life's big questions in this story? Now, verse 3 tells us that after 20 years of cruel oppression, the Israelites cry out to God for help. I don't know what took them so long, but they cried out to God finally. And to counter the three enemies, Jabal, Sisera, and the Canaanites, 
God partners with three deliverers, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Pick up with me in verse 4. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw Sisera out, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now that little factoid of information is there to indicate that this group of Kenites is actually allies with the Canaanites. But there's going to be a plot twist. So when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Inubinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The three deliverers, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Deborah is introduced as a prophet and as a judge. The people of Israel come to her for wisdom, advice, discernment for their otherwise intractable dilemmas. And you know you have the gift of wisdom when people come to you and keep coming to you for advice. Deborah listens attentively to God and then teaches and preaches God's word to the people. Unlike all the other judges in the book who lead through military power, Deborah is the only one who leads in this way. She leads through attention to God, through wisdom in discerning, and through boldness in preaching. This is what our world needs. Leaders like Deborah who attend to God and speak and lead with courage. In whatever sphere of influence you have, I urge you to lead like Deborah. Now to Barak. Barak is the military commander, and the text is silent on what he has been doing for the past 20 years under Canaanite oppression. But the word of God shakes him into action through Deborah's word. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has commanded you, Barak, go and fight against Sisera, and I will give you victory. Guaranteed. This is the God who parted the Red Sea and brought the nation safely out of Egypt. 
This is the God who provided miraculous food for Israel and protected them for 40 years while they lived in the desert. This is the God whose word is a guarantee. And after a little negotiation and some reminders from Deborah, Barak goes and he defeats the Canaanite army and their 900 chariots. This is remarkable. It's remarkable for two reasons. First, it's remarkable because of God's action. What would normally be a Canaanite victory turns into a Canaanite loss because God himself is actively on the side of Israel. The Canaanites didn't see it coming. It's remarkable for a second reason, and that is that Barak has faith enough to obey God. In the face of what appears to be a sure defeat, all Barak has to do is show up and gather some people and put his army in a place that they would normally reasonably expect to be defeated and killed. Simple enough. Scary enough. But God does the opposite of what is reasonably expected and Israel throws off Canaanite oppression. What happens next? Sisera takes off running. He's quite fast, and he evades the army of Israel. They lose track of him, and he hides in the tent of Heber and Jael, people Sisera thinks are allies. Now, in the story we're about to read, there are a few morally ambiguous, potentially deceptive assurances that Jael gives, and then Jael firmly secures victory for Israel in the promised land. Read with me in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, where the wife of Heber, or let me start that again. But Sisera fled away on the foot, on foot to the tent of Jael, where the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there were peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if a man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, the, of Heber took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. The Lord God has delivered his people from oppression and bondage. Life is good and wonderful again. Chapter 5 records a ballad written to commemorate God's deliverance that the whole nation sings, and the, next, and the text tells us that the land had rest for 40 years. Everybody can breathe easy. Unfortunately, it does not last. The cycle repeats. And Judges chapter 6 starts the exact same way 
Judges chapter 4 started. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The close relationship with God that, the, with, that God had with humans was designed, to conti- was designed to be close and intimate and trusting. And yet, again and again in Judges, we see this pattern where it is stretched apart, stretched thin to the point of breaking. The profound mission that God gave Israel to bless the entire world continues to be halted because humanity's decision to turn away from God and enter into bondage. And this detailed story provides a mirror for humanity. Can we see ourselves in it? I would love to sit with each of you over lunch and hear your observations about all the answers that this story points about your big questions and about how you see this story pointing to Jesus Christ. I'd be glad to hear the touch points in your life, maybe some painful touch points, about what hinders you and what stretches you apart from God. I know that's not practical right now. And this is why our church actually gathers in small groups, so that each of us can sit with Bible in hand and honestly share what we're seeing in the Scripture and what we're seeing in our lives. If you're not part of a small group, I encourage you to join a small group at our church. Before the time that we have left today, let me share a few observations as I've reflected on this story. Observation number one. Jesus is the true and better deliverer. Deborah is good. Barak is faithful. Jael gets the job done. But Jesus is better. The Israelites had to look forward to the next judge and the next judge and the next judge for future salvation. But we simply need to look back to Jesus and what he has done and live into it. When Jesus died on the cross, no further action was needed, guaranteed. The Gospel of John tells us this story. Jesus is talking with another judge of Israel. His name is Nicodemus. His official title is not judge, but Pharisee. But like Deborah, Nicodemus teaches the people God's ways and provides wisdom for their decisions. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that because God so loved the world that God sent his son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish. They will be saved. They will have eternal life. And so in a way that echoes Barak's battle with Sisera, Jesus enters the world, a place full of evil and oppression. Jesus is sent to defeat all that binds humanity. And Jesus defeats all that binds humanity through his teaching, which is truer and better than Deborah's, representing the design pattern for humans to live. Jesus defeats all that binds humanity through confrontation with evil powers in a truer and better way than Barak's confrontation with the Canaanite army. Jesus directly speaks against the demonic and directly speaks against systems of corruption and injustice. Jesus defeats all that binds humanity through his crucifixion, where Roman soldiers drove spikes through his feet and his hands into a wooden cross, a truer and better action than Jael's tent peg. So forceful is the act of Jesus' self-inflicted nails that evil is spread throughout all creation since the beginning of humanity is dealt a death blow on the first century Roman cross in occupied Israel. 
And the evil that has spread throughout all our world today is given that same death blow from that same first century Roman cross. Jesus has done it. No further action is necessary, guaranteed. Hallelujah. The great first century theologian and apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Just as one trespass, Adam's sin in the garden, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, Jesus' death on the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. Amen. Amen. Observation number two. There is still evil in our world. Because individuals like you and me, organizations like our church and our city, still give in to temptation and turn away from God. The people of Israel were continuously tempted to turn to their beliefs and ethics and pleasures of the surrounding cultures, and so are we. Do you know the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Have you heard that before? It shines light on our own temptations. Right before Jesus begins his delivering work for the world, right before that, Satan tries to bind him down and hinder the mission that God has sent him on. Uh, when Satan tried unsuccessfully, uh, what Satan tried unsuccessfully to tempt Jesus with are the very same things Satan successfully tempts us with. And when we give in, we get bound down in evil. The story is recorded in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was hungry. He was hungry because he had been fasting from 40, for 40 days. 40 days, no food. He was hungry. And so Satan comes to Jesus and appeals to his appetite. Turn these stones into bread, Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with Jesus doing that. It's certainly within his capacity to turn stones into bread, except that it was Satan and not God the Father telling Jesus to do this. And it's a categorically always a bad idea to listen to Satan. Even if Satan is telling you to do a reasonably good thing, it's categorically wrong to do it. Don't do it, church. But what appetites tempt you? You know, it's easy to become bound by our appetites in American culture. We're a consumeristic culture. We're a culture that passionately affirms fulfilling each and every desire we have. You know, within a matter of minutes from leaving these doors after the church service today, you can satisfy any desire you have for food, for sexual encounter, for self-expression. Now, I invite you just to satisfy your appetite over lunch with us, the rest of the church. But our culture loudly tells us that it is actually wrong if we do not satisfy our appetites quickly as possible. So what are the appetites that you have? What are the appetites our church has? They could be good things. But we might be tempted to satisfy them in our own timing, in our own way. And you might think, wait, what do you mean? How can the church be tempted? If Jesus Christ can be tempted, surely our church, his body, can be tempted. We're in a discernment season right now over the next few months as a church. And I have a pretty strong appetite for comfort. And I want this uncomfortable discernment crisis to be resolved as soon as possible. But I'm not so sure that what God wants to do to refresh our church is going to make us comfortable anytime soon. The appetites that we have might go unsatisfied for a while longer, specifically because 
God wants to do something profound in us if we are willing to hunger a little longer and wait on his timing. But Satan is whispering, God's not enough for you. You've got to, you've got to satisfy your appetites on your own. And that's bondage. Satan also appeals to Jesus' ambitions. Jesus is dead set on saving the entire world from Satan's grip and ruling as a rightful king. Talk about ambition. So Satan says to Jesus, hey, I'll give you all the nations as long as you, Jesus, bow down and worship me, Satan. Just the fine print. You can accomplish your mission right now, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? My guess is that your ambitions and your dreams are planted in your heart by God, specifically for you to pursue in all your unique gifting, in all your unique passions. Your ambitions likely will bring you a lot of joy and will bless a lot of people. And again, I'm thinking about our church ambitions in this discernment process. What are we trying to do? Who are we trying to be as a community in Davis and Yolo County in the world? Satan said, do it right now, Jesus. And our culture says, let's go fast. Don't just live out the mission of God, that mission that God has given you. Be the best at it. Be the quickest at it. In fact, our culture says, be the best at your ambitions. We are a superlative, crazed culture. Strongest, fastest, prettiest, most creative, most successful, most best. And Satan is whispering, you're not doing enough. Come on, get after it right now. I'll show you how to be the best right now. It's bondage. And Satan tempts us with approval. He tempts Jesus with approval. Jesus, he says, go do something outrageously miraculous in front of all the worshipers at the temple. He says, go to the very top of the temple and just jump off. You know, I've always joked with Derek about doing like a front flip off the stage. Maybe now is the time. I'm not. God will catch me and I won't break my neck. Any American wanting the meteoric rise to the top of celebrity culture would have loved to perform the stunt that Satan suggests that Jesus performed. Our culture fixates on likes and follows and crowds and affirmation and the next great thing. All the while... God is there telling us, hey, you're so very deeply loved. 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 Everybody on the live stream, you're so very deeply loved. And you're welcome here. But Satan is whispering, God doesn't matter. You're simply not enough unless more people approve of you. Bond bondage. And we need a deliverer from our bondage. I've got two more observations about this story, but let's regroup for just a moment. Jesus is our deliverer from evil, so we're free from its grip right now. But even though we are free, we keep running back to pursue our appetites, ambitions, and our need for approval in all the wrong ways, and we bind ourselves again 
and again and again. So we're in a bit of a pickle. How are we ever going to move forward into the right direction? We need Jesus both to set humanity free and to enable humanity to live into that freedom. So observation number three, Jesus is the true and better human. He's the true and better human. Let me explain something that's very complex about the Christian faith. Remember how the story of Deborah shifts to the next story? Israel goes back to doing evil. Remember how the story goes for me and likely for you? No matter how hard we try, we wind up forgetting God and trying to live without him. Not Jesus. Jesus always perfectly trusts God, always perfectly obeys God, always completely pays attention to God. In all the gospel accounts, Jesus never rebels, never turns away. And when we place our faith in Jesus, several things happen. Yes, the power of Jesus, defeat of evil, breaks the power of evil over us, and we are free. Absolutely. And also, the faithfulness in which Jesus lives his life is offered to us. Not that we're now perfectly oriented toward God, but that we get to stand with Jesus in his perfect orientation towards God. This is a little complex. The people who first realized this and reflected on it wrote about it in the New Testament, and they called it being in Christ. To be in Christ. In Acts 17, verse 28, it says, In Christ we live and we move and we have our being. Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them, in the good works that we were created to do in Christ. And the result is that for the rest of our lives, we live in Christ's faithfulness. Jesus doesn't just set us free and tell us to work hard at staying free. He knows we can't. And so as the true and better human, Jesus leads the way. It's a bit like drafting on a bicycle. You know, I've been cycling early in the morning with FBCers like Brad Main. And just this morning, Brad and I went with Mike Wall and Chris Croggy out towards Winters. And there's a stretch of Poudre Creek Road towards Winters, just west of here, that the cyclists call the last mile. And it's a, it's a section where we're trying to go faster and faster and get faster and faster times on this mile stretch. And I was solo riding the other day, and I was pushing it as hard as I could go to beat the record, and I didn't come close. I was exhausted. To beat our record, we have to draft. Drafting is where one cyclist is in front, pushing into the wind, creating a draft behind him. The wind resistance is just going around, which enables us to go faster and farther than we could by ourselves. So, Brad's in front, pedaling with all his strength, and I'm right in behind him, in this pocket of air, and I'm working hard. You better believe I'm working hard. But I'm in Brad's draft, and he's taking all the wind resistance, and his draft is pulling me forward. In fact, sometimes I have to put on the brakes a little bit because it is fairly easy to draft behind someone compared to when you go in front and take the wind. And this is like being in Christ. 
Jesus brings us along in himself, in his draft, so that we can live a life oriented toward God because Jesus is oriented toward God. So Paul writes in Colossians 1.29, I strenuously work with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In Christ. Let me read that again. I, Paul, strenuously work with all of the energy Christ powerfully works in me. In Christ takes the pressure off of us having to be perfect on our own. Which is good because striving for perfection puts us right back into the life of bondage to our appetites and our ambition and our approval. So the first step in being set free by Jesus is to acknowledge that you can't take the first step. It's to acknowledge that you can't take any step without being in Christ. Every once in a while, I'll repeat a saying that I learned when I was 18. I was at a Bible school, and I was full of passion for God and living my best efforts to live a holy life. And the phrase goes like this. I can't. I never said I could. He can. He always said he would. And so I let him and say thank you. I can't. I never said I could. Sometimes I actually do think I can. But I want to get to that place. I can't. I never said I could. He can. He always said he would. And so I let him and I say thank you. God, we can't. Our church can't. Our culture can't do it. We say we can, but when we're honest, we know we can't. You can. You can save us, God. You can solve all our problems. You've promised to do it. In fact, you've already done it on the cross in Jesus Christ. You've always said you would, and we want to live in Christ. We want to let you lead the way, and we want to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the final thing, the final observation that I want to make today is that we are invited to join in Jesus' deliverance ministry. And this is one of the best things about Christianity. This ancient war account shows us how God chooses to invite humans to join God's deliverance work. God could defeat the Canaanites without any human help, but he chooses to invite Deborah and Barak and Jael and Opportunity to join him. Jesus does defeat evil all by himself. Only Jesus could do it. But then he invites his disciples to join in work, in his work, helping people live into the deliverance Jesus offers. And as you are freed by Jesus, he invites you to join him. This is one of the most remarkable realities about Jesus Christ. The God who is alive and active in our world invites you, invites me into his work. Every morning you can wake up thanking God that he saves you. And then you can ask God to help you live like you're saved. And then you can offer God your partnership in whatever work he wants to do with you today. You remember the young man I was walking with in downtown Vancouver on Hastings Street. Uh, we kept in close relationship for the next five years. And this young man got the job. This young man joined our youth group. 
This young man went on service trips with our youth group across Canada multiple times, blessing people, caring for them, meeting people's tangible needs. This young man became a mentor to other young kids in our youth group who were going through similar chaos. This young man got to partner with Jesus Christ in his deliverance work in the world. Are there people in your life, in your sphere of influence, maybe that God is bringing to mind right now, that God is saying, hey, come with me and let us set some people free. Let's just take a few moments of silence and let these words in the story sink in, shall we? Father, Son, and Spirit, here we are. We're saying thank you. Would you continue to set us free? Would you continue to set our city free, our world free? Thank you.